0: Welcome to New Books in Politics on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bill Cher. Today, we are joined by the author of Suicide of the West, uh, publishing on April 24th, 2018, the senior editor of the National Review and a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, Jonah Goldberg. Thanks for being here.
1: Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me.
0: So let's start the, uh, with the title, uh, Suicide of the West, How the Rebirth of Tribalism, populism, nationalism, and, identi- and identity politics is destroying American democracy. What do you mean by suicide and what do you mean by the West? Sure. Um, uh,
1: so for 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 listeners on the right who are particularly enamored with the long intellectual history of national review, um, they take offense or they take exceptions to the title because this is the title of a book by James Burnham, one of the great uh, mid 20th century, uh, former communist than conservative intellectuals. And it's a little bit of an homage to that, but it's also, um, you know, I didn't want to call, I didn't want to go Spangler. And then the book is actually much more, um, upbeat, at least at the end than it sounds. Um, but I chose suicide of the West in part because suicide's a choice, you know, I didn't call it the decline of the West or the death of the West. Um, and part of my argument is, is that as a civilization, uh, we are choosing a certain path. And, um, and that implies that we can choose not to. We have the power. And so part of, my, part, of, part, of, part of what I'm trying to do in the book is if I had a friend who was suicidal, what would I tell him or her? And I would tell them about all the things that they have to be grateful for, all of the things that they've accomplished, all of the things they have to look forward to. And um, and not to sort of give in to despair. And that's sort of the overriding takeaway of the book at the end. In terms of the West, uh, I understand that that talking about Western civilization can be uh, fighting words in some corners. Um, I really don't invest much one way or the other in some of the fights that you get on the West, save in the sense that uh, my understanding of the West, the purposes of this book. Um, it has more to do with a philosophical or political orientation than it has anything to do with, uh, ethnicity or race, or, um, even to a certain extent, geography. Uh, you know, I don't really care about the debates about where we would define the lines between the West and the not West at any given point in the last 2000 years. What I'm talking about is essentially the inheritance of democracy, the enlightenment, um, the principles of of religious pluralism, um, institutional pluralism, uh, the sort of the Lockean inheritance that we get primarily from England, but it has you know, all sorts of add-ons from other parts of Europe and from America. Um, and so for me, it's a philosophical orientation more than it is some sort of, I don't use it in the Trumpian sense of, or even the, even to a certain extent, the Huntington sense of, like sort of the West versus the rest. I want my ideally, I would like all of the nations of the world one day to sort of subscribe to some version of the best attributes of the West. Um, and I don't see it as a sort of hegemonic thing. Of course, that statement will sound hegemonic to a lot of people, but therein lies the debate.
0: Well, in fact, sometimes the Western civilization is seen as a, a loaded term because there's an implication that you're saying that a group of people is inherently superior to another group of people, that the, this group of people came up with this great idea and, and this other group of people didn't. But if I understand your book correctly, you suggest that uh, what you call the miracle um, of, uh, of the Enlightenment and democracy and capitalism was somewhat of an accident of history, not because of any kind of sort of genetic predetermination.
1: Oh, yeah, sure. It certainly has nothing to do with genetics. Um, I mean, zero to do with genetics. <clears throat> save save in the sense not even no, there in, in no sense can i think of that does have anything to do with genetics um i am not making a racial argument about white people of any kind um my argument is you're right that we basically the west or humanity itself stumbled into um what i call the miracle liberal democratic capitalism the you know the sort of enlightenment regime certainly the scottish or english enlightenment regime because the I think this is one of the things that Pinker gets a little wrong about just saying the enlightenment is this one monolithic thing. It wasn't. Um, but, uh, this, this sort of regime of modernity, what you could call it, um, it wasn't planned. It wasn't, you know, sort of, uh, and it wasn't given to us by God. The first words of the book are there is no God in this book. And so just to sort of set the framework, um, my argument is that, uh, uh, wait, well, let me put it this way. The reason there is no God in this book, which is the first sentence of the, of the book, is that I do not want to rely on a lot of the arguments that my fellow conservatives often do, which are basically deus ex machina arguments, right? That G- Providence gave us this bounty, this signing, shining city on the hill, because particularly in this day and age, um, those sorts of arguments all only work with people who already agree with you. And one of the things I am trying to do, because I think, one of the most dismaying things about what's happened to the right in recent years is that it's given up on the idea of persuading people. And so I want to work from the premises of essentially, you don't, you don't have to call it the left, but sort of your just sort of modern mainstream liberal progressive uh, mindset, which is basically uh, sees its values in, in secular terms, in material terms, uh, in the values of sort of science. And so I start from the premise that that the sort of secular view of the world is correct, that evolution is true, um, and that uh, we are descended from animals and that we have acquired certain aspects of our character and our natures from, the, from evolutionary adaptation. And, and so my argument is, is that if, it, what, what, what flows from that is that democracy is unnatural, capitalism is unnatural, Rights and liberty are, in a certain, to a certain extent, completely unnatural as well, um, because if these things were natural, they would have occurred sometime earlier in the evolutionary record than 300 years ago. Homo sapiens have been around, depending on who you ask, between you know, 250 and 350,000 years. And um, for most of that time, we lived in small tribal units, and um, you can call them platoons or packs, whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. But that's how we evolved. We evolved to live in these little units, and um, and for almost for literally all of human history until almost like the day before yesterday, the natural environment of humanity was violence and poverty. And then once and only once in all of human history did that start to change in a reliable way for the average human being. There've only been rich aristocrats to one extent. I shouldn't say always, but in the last since the agricultural revolution, there have been rich aristocrats. What there haven't been is rich, normal people, average people, laborers. And, and that only started to change once in all of human history. And it happened basically in England and Holland, um, though I focused on England, um, which annoys some Dutch jingoists. And, um, uh, and that's what I call the miracle. And one of the reasons I call it a miracle, I don't call it a miracle because God gave it to us, according to my argument. I call it a miracle because we can't explain it pretty much every economic historian I'm aware of agrees that for most of human history, human beings lived in absolute backbreaking poverty, but they don't agree on is why the miracle happened. And for me, I think that is a reason to be sort of both humble and grateful for it, um, because we don't know how it happened and we're not sure how to sustain it. Um, but it also, the reason we should be grateful for it is that Again, going by the values of sort of the secular mainstream progressive left, virtually every single thing that decent progressives claim to care about. And I think they sincerely can't care about these things. I'm not trying to be invidious and say that they're faking it. Um, virtually every single you know trend that they claim to care about, from material prosperity to human dignity to human freedom to the decline in rape and violence, longevity – all of them have all gotten better because of this miracle. And, and, and I think that what our response to that should be, since we don't know where it comes from, is a certain amount of gratitude for it, a certain amount of humility about what we can get away with, with tinkering with it. Um, and, um, and, a, and a certain amount of sort of celebration of it. And yet that's not where our culture is today. So when you say in the beginning that, you know, the West sort of is a loaded term for a lot of people, I think that's part of the problem. You know, it is, there's very little celebration of the great and glorious things that Western civilization has done. Instead, the narrative that we almost, you know, relentlessly get is to focus on all of the bad things in Western history. And there are many bad things. I would just argue that those things aren't what separate out Western civilization or make Western civilization different. Those things are common to pretty much every civilization, every empire, every society for all of human history. What's interesting about and special about Western civilization is the way it broke from the norm of human history to sort of help liberate humanity
0: from from the bondage of the past. So in your discussion, and so people understand the the first third of the book really gets into um, the early stages of human nature and and the birth of uh, capitalism the enlightenment uh, only later on in the book do we talk about uh, more present day uh, you're uh, you get into how uh, the left doesn't appreciate what you call the miracle and looks on the downside of all of these uh, various metrics uh, but today, the people in power are not the left. It's the Trumpian right. So uh, what is it about what's going on presently that makes you worried about the longevity or the sustainability of the miracle?
1: Yeah. So um, I, I, my, I agree with you that the right is in political power and it's just doing a boffo job. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, but um, I would still say that the left controls what Lenin would call the commanding heights of the culture campuses, Hollywood, the communications industries, um, all of the places where the narratives of our civilization are shaped, um, with the exception of what Fox news and country music are, are largely dominated by the, you know, whether you want to call them the cultural left or the new class or whatever it is. And, um, I think Noah Rothman makes a very good point is that one of the reasons why so many people on the left are so frustrated and freaked out with this moment is that they think that the government can achieve the ends, um, of the cultural left when it's not designed to do a lot of that stuff. But in terms of the right, I think the right is a hot mess right now. Um, in part because of that thing I referenced in the beginning about how it's basically, I don't want to say all of it, but large chunks of it has turned its back on the idea of persuasion. Um, and instead it's this sort of, uh, you know, tribal idea that we Um, you know, that something is worth doing simply if it it makes, you know, liberals angry or sad, you know, this whole sort of like, we have to do this because we have to own the libs, I find so incredibly childish. Uh, We find on college campuses, I speak on a lot of college campuses, you know, and these kids are being taught that simply being rude, um, conservative kids are being taught that simply being rude is justifiable in its own right, so long as it upsets liberals. And I just and because rudeness is unpolitical is politically incorrect, therefore it's justifiable. And I think that is just incredibly dumb and and immoral, or at least unethical, and and it lead, is, leads to all sorts of terrible things. But more broadly, uh, one of the things that dismays me the most about the right these days, particularly the Bannonite right um, or the so so-called nationalist right, um, which of course includes the alt right. But I don't but I think there are parts of the nationalist right that aren't necessarily the sort of the open bigots that the alt-right people are. But regardless, there is this rush to essentially a right wing form of identity politics and um, to say that, um, you know, that we don't want any immigrants. It doesn't matter how much they love this country, how much they want to be here, how much they want to assimilate, how much they want to contribute, how much they do contribute. It doesn't matter. We want to turn our back on that. Um, uh, white evangelical Christians to, if you, if you go solely by the polling are increasingly becoming essentially a cult of personality, far more interested in political power, transactional relationships with a political leader than they are in sort of the the higher ideals that I used to defend them for all the time. Um, and, uh, there is, uh, you know, Michael Anton, who until recently was the head of the, um, was the spokesman for the communications director for the National Security Council. He wrote this famous essay called The Flight 93 Election, arguing that basically the 2016 election was an existential crisis for America. And if Donald Trump didn't win, America would be over because essentially it was like the passengers on Flight 93, you have to storm the cockpit or you all die. And I found that repugnant in its own right. But um, because if this country is one election away from being over, then it's already over because that's not what this country is supposed to be about. But moreover, I've into debates with him online back when he was still anonymous. And he was arguing that, look, the, the left has already won the ideas of a merit-based colorblind society where we judge people by the contents of their character, not the contents of their skin. That's over. The left has abandoned it. So we need to abandon it too and fight fire with fire and have our own identity politics of the right. I find that repugnant and one of the reasons why I find it it is also profoundly dangerous because if, 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 if the people controlling the sort of idea formation business on the right give into that notion, then we really do live in a Balkanized society where everybody just simply argues from a pure power perspective about their ethnicity, their gender, their abstract categories of being rather than making arguments about how this is a country for everybody and that is a suicidal tendency and in a lot of ways a big chunk of my argument in this last half of the book is about how the, the, it really takes two to commit suicide when it comes to politics because it takes both sides caving into this argument about identity politics being the only way to understand your fellow americans which i think is deeply poisonous and pernicious
0: well let's 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 get into that a little bit because i, I the subtitle of the book how the rebirth of tribalism Populism, nationalism, and identity politics is strong American democracy. You know, on the on the left, they're probably with you when you say tribalism and nationalism is destroying American democracy. Populism, you start to you start to lose the bureaucrats. That the identity politics, you lose. You know, everybody else on the left. Um, what is it about identity politics on the left and the right that directly threatens American democracy?
1: Right. So one of the things, you know, again, the book starts about 250, 300,000 years ago. So it has, a, it has a big sweep to it. But one of the amazing things that you get in the American founding, which was novel, at least going back the last 11, 12,000 years, was this idea of getting rid of titles of nobility. Right. Aristocracy, which exists in every society, basically, every advanced or even halfway advanced civilization over the last 10,000 years had some notion of aristocracy. What they called it varied, and you make arguments about, you know, how recognizable it was about as an aristocracy, but they existed everywhere. It's a natural part of human nature to form aristocracies. And what the founding fathers did, which was to say, you can no longer be a part of a ruling class simply, at least if you were white, you know, uh, simply by virtue of an accident of birth. And um, so all titles of nobility went away. Now, we can talk about slavery in a second. This was still an unbelievably radical idea at the time to sort of jettison that whole way of seeing um, uh, how to organize society. And today I see identity politics having far more in common with aristocracies of the past, then they have differences because the the core assumption of an aristocracy like identity politics is that simply by virtue of your birth, simply by virtue of an accident of your birth, you are, someone can be better or worse or more deserving than somebody else. And it seems to me that the, 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 the best part of the, of, of the story of America, which is something that Barack Obama has spoken about quite eloquently, which has a straight line going from Martin Luther King to Abraham Lincoln um, at Gettysburg is this idea that you judge individuals as you find them and not as part of simply some abstract category. And I think that, you know, part of the problem, you know, and part of the reason why we have identity politics has to do with the breakdown of civil society, breakdown of the family, but it also has to do with this, you know, part of, part of the evil legacy of slavery Is that we reduced all people with black skin, even one drop of black blood, supposedly, um, to to the same essence. So people from different parts of Africa who have different stories, different ethnicities, different cultures, they had all of that taken from them and they were boiled down to just the color of their skin. And to me, as evil as that was, um, it doesn't excuse doing the same thing in the reverse today where we now basically say the only thing you need to know about um, a black immigrant or a native or, or, or a black guy who's been here for 400 years is to reduce them down to some alleged shared historical grievance. No matter how real that grievance may be in historical terms, it doesn't tell you very much about any given individual. And for years, you know, the left rightly complained about how um, racism reduced people to a, a mere abstraction. And now I think they've just flipped it on its head and they still reduce people to a mere abstraction, but they just, they do it in different terms. And I think that is something that's deeply pernicious for the culture, because if once you do that, first of all, you're negating the, the agency of individual people, whether you do it about race or, pre, or race or gender or whatever, but you also make it logically impossible to transcend these differences, which I think You know, is one of the great gifts of this country is the ability to assimilate people and have people transcend these differences. Uh,
0: uh, One of our previous guests, uh, Joshua Zeitz, who's a Politico uh, contributing editor, he had a piece last year uh, responding to uh, Mark Lilla, who I think you also quote on identity politics in the book. Uh, And Zeitz's argument was that we've always had identity politics. It's not he says, it's not a new phenomena. It's as American as apple pie. Throughout our history, identity politics has always, almost always meant white identity politics, a style of persuasion rooted in appeals to white resentment and privilege. Uh, I mean, so whether identity politics is good or bad, if it's always been there, is it a threat to our democratic fiber?
1: Yes, it is. And I think that is, is, is stealing a couple bases there. <clears throat> I absolutely agree that there has been, there certainly has been ethnic politics in America since America's founding, you know Benjamin Franklin talking about how you know these German barbarians in Western Pennsylvania can never be assimilated, right? You know uh, the Irish in New York. You know just have to watch gangs of New York to see that there was you know uh, there was there were identity politics to use the term extremely loosely, even amongst and between different subsets of quote unquote white people, um, and that is natural. That is part of human nature. Amy Chua writes about this at great length and in her book, Political Tribes, this is the, the natural tendency for people to form coalitions is hardwired into us. And the neuroscience on this is, to me, absolutely dispositive. But the difference is, I don't think it's quite right. I, I, to be sure, um, you know there was an unforgivable amount of white racism in the United States, particularly in the South, and that it infected a lot of politics in our time. And that is to be, you know, condemned and lamented and acknowledged. I have no problem acknowledging any of that. But at the same time, look, a civilization is ultimately just a story that it tells itself about itself. And one of the great and glorious things, so when the Declaration of Independence was first written, the radical part was not the first paragraph. That was considered essentially kind of like, you know, high-flying boilerplate the radical part was the end which said independence it took a couple generations for the first you know for the idea that we are you know that all you know, we find it self evident that all men are created equal and that we are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights yada yada that thing took a while to become the sort of essence of the american creed and what cemented it was abraham lincoln at gettysburg who basically reconceived the american founding to fit that idea and that narrative and that narrative didn't come to its, I mean, it's, it's still going on today, but the next great culmination of that narrative was Martin Luther King at the Lincoln Memorial in which he said, you know, the founding fathers wrote us a promissory note and they've failed, you know, in the Declaration of Independence and they've failed to live up to it. And the glory of Martin Luther King's speech was that he was appealing to white America's best version of itself, saying you're falling short of the things that you claim to believe in the things that you teach your children that you teach your fellow citizens that you teach in schools is the best version of america you're falling short on this one key thing and that is what persuaded you know vast swaths of of, of, of white america to subscribe to the civil rights movement and to subscribe to the civil rights act as they should have and that's the point that you know Barack Obama would make often about how you know the great thing about the founding wasn't that they got it right right away obviously they did they, they didn't they're creatures of their time but what they got right were these sort of inarguable ideas that took time to unfold this narrative of America that took time to unfold the problem that we have with identity politics today is the idea of encouraging people to become Americans is considered those that's considered fighting words the university of california says that, you know, terms like melting pot and assimilation are offensive and that we can't use them. This idea that somehow we should, you know, subscribe to anything like a bourgeois, you know, uh, lifestyle is considered, you know, outrageously racist or sexative or heteronormative or whatever. This idea that there is something good and glorious to celebrate about being an American is now considered essentially sort of jingoism by vast swaths, of sort of the intellectual left, and in a creepy, weird mirror fashion, big chunks of the American right have bought into this—you know—this dystopian idea that America is, you know, besieged and and being undone by these people desperate to become Americans. And it's a very—it's—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, 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 it's very difficult to find people on the right or the left, who are willing to sort of step forward and say, hey, wait a second. Yeah, we got more work to do. Yeah, our past isn't perfect. But this is a good story. And it's a better story than pretty much anyone else has. Um, instead, there's a Western civilization in America have this kind of autoimmune problem, that we take the problems that we have, and we use them as excuses to attack healthy institution and organs of the body politic. And it's a, I, I think it's a very dangerous path that we're on.
0: So what do you say to a person on the left? Cause I think a lot of folks on the left hear identity politics is bad and interpret that as you're saying I can't talk about racism in society as it stands. I can't talk about police brutality. I can't talk about sexual misconduct. I can't talk about uh, attacks on transgender rights. You're shutting that conversation down. Uh, what do you say to somebody who says – I? I need to talk about those issues. The they exist in society today, as, as good as we have, as far as we have come, problems remain. How do I talk about these things that affect discrete groups in society without stumbling into what you define as uh, balkanizing identity politics?
1: Yeah, look, I, I have absolutely no problem. And if you read National Review in the last year, you'll find lots of conservative writers, people like David French, And others, you know, talking at, you know, writing at great length about the problems of police abuse. I have no problem. You know, look, police abuse should be wrong, regardless of the color of the skin of the victim. The fact that it disproportionately affects African-Americans, I think, is an absolutely legitimate thing to talk about. Where I think the left goes off the rails when it talks about these things is where it – It adopts basically again the mirror version of language that they would recognize as indisputably racist if it were aimed at other ethnic groups. So when you start, you know, yes, all white people are racist. You know, when you when you hear things like that, when when everything is reduced to, you know, like it's amazing to me. uh, Look, you're a good traditional liberal, right? For the last (laughs) seventy years, up until about five minutes ago, one of the things that big chunks of the Democratic Party took as a point of pride was how the sort of white working class, the Joe Lunchbucket guys, were, you know, were an essential part of the Democratic coalition going back to FDR. And we're supposed to believe that they weren't racist um, when they were voting for Barack Obama, when they were voting for Bill Clinton, when they were voting for Harry Truman and LBJ, even though by every indicator, this country has gotten less racist than it was back then. But suddenly, because they voted for Donald Trump, they all became racists, and because they're no longer in the left's coalition, uh, a presidential electoral coalition, I think that's garbage, and I find it amazing to me how so many people have um, have, have opted to basically uh, give up the old class-based arguments of the left, you know, the sort of which is very much a Bernie argument, right, um, in favor of these arguments that basically say. Um, all of the institutions in the society are deeply infected with white supremacy, white privilege, and that white people cannot transcend this iron cage of identity. Identity. I think it's an immoral argument. I think it's an incorrect argument. But I also think it is a deeply politically stupid argument because the more you encourage people, look, look, the more you demonize any ethnicity, even the majority ethnicity, and say that white people are evil. White people are inherently evil. That they can't get over their own white supremacy. That uh, anytime they object to being called racist, it's because of white fragility. You make those kinds of arguments fine on a college campus, and you can have some sort of debate, or you can get people to shut up. But you start making those arguments as they trickle out through the popular culture, as they trickle out through the Oscars um, and the Oscar, you know, and and all of these sorts of other places of the commanding heights of the culture basically just demonizing white people. The natural human tendency when, when being attacked isn't for human beings to say, Oh my gosh, you're right about everything. I'm horrible. And all of my ancestors are horrible. The natural human response is to say, Hey, wait a second. You know, my dad was a pretty good guy. My great granddad was a pretty good guy. He fought, you know, in world war II. Um, you know, my great, great, great grandfather fought for the union army you know, freeing the slaves. Why do I, you know, or my father was an immigrant. Why am I responsible for slavery? This idea of collective guilt, um, is a deeply pernicious one. And it leads white people to do the same thing that all other ethnicities or all other colors of people do, which is to all of a sudden become defensive about their own race. And so we saw with Donald Trump that people who thought of themselves, thought their identity was deeply bound up in being white, were far more likely to vote for for Donald Trump. Um, And what you get is a backlash where you get people saying, hey, wait a second, you know, who are you to say my people aren't any good and start thinking of themselves in racial terms too. And I think that is a a profoundly dangerous way to go. Um, You know, look, out in California, they started tearing down, I think it was California, started tearing down statues of union generals. You know, that makes me want to take a bath with a toaster. You know, can't we, can't we at least celebrate the fact that the United States, you know, went to war to end slavery and that the winning side was the side that got to end slavery? Isn't that a worthwhile part of our narrative? Um, you know, it's, it's as if a lot of people just want to declare war on the entire past of the United States, regardless of the specifics. And that will engender a backlash, and that backlash will not be to the benefit of liberals or liberal ideas or progressives or the Democratic Party.
0: We're talking with Jonah Goldberg, author of Suicide of the West, published by Crown Forum. Um, You don't, as much as you uh, note, you argue that liberal identity politics causes this conservative backlash, I don't think you let conservatives off the hook either. Uh, You say uh, one passage in your book, conservatism was moving in the direction of identity politics for white people long before Trump. And it may have ended up where it is today sooner or later, had he never run for president. But I believe the precipitating cause for the rights surrender to populism and tribalism was the failure of the tea parties. Why, Why? what did the tea party do to uh, create the current situation on the right?
1: Right. So I argue that it was in effect, a psychic break that happened on the right. Um, and again, it might have happened anyway over a longer period of time, but it might have been more manageable had it you know, gone a different way. Look, I don't like populism. People who think that I don't like populism just because I don't like Donald Trump haven't been reading me for 20 years. Um, I've always disliked populism. I think it's anti-intellectual. I think it's anti-democratic. It is the logic of the mob. You know, William Jennings Bryan has this great line where he says, you know, the people, are for, the people of Nebraska are for free silver. Therefore, I am for free silver. I will look up the arguments later. Um, the thing I've always loved about conservatism um, and also intellectual liberalism, you know, uh, I grew up reading the New Republic before I read the you know, National Review, is the importance of arguments and ideas. And populism stands athwart the importance of arguments and ideas. It is raw power politics um, applied to a system that is supposed to temper that kind of passion. And, but anyway, I supported the Tea Parties. Um, In large part because this was like the first populist uprising that I can remember that um, was actually dedicated to the kind of things that you would want, at least I would want a populist, you know, movement to be dedicated to. It was like back to basics, live within our means, limited government, constitutionalism. Um, And were there crackpots and weirdos on the fringes of the thing? Sure. Just as there were clearly at Occupy Wall Street And any mass spontaneous movement is going to attract opportunists. But I went to enough book clubs and small group meetings where people are reading the Federalist Papers and and the road to serfdom and these things. And I thought this could be the fulfillment of that ancient libertarian prophecy where the libertarians take over and then leave everybody alone. And the problem was, by my lights, was that um, despite all of this, they were – by the mainstream media, they were demonized anyway as racist. It was all through the prism of these people are protesting Donald Trump. I mean, I'm sorry, these people are protesting Barack Obama. Any protest of Barack Obama is driven by racism. And um, these people are all racist. And they went way out of their way time and again to try and push that narrative even when it wasn't true. And one of the best examples was when um, the Congressional Black Caucus in a deliberate stunt you know, tried to provoke the Tea Party crowd in front of the Capitol um, by walking, by marching straight through them. They claimed afterwards that they were spit on and that the N-word was hurled at them. And my late friend Andrew Breitbart, who I don't think should be blamed for the garbage fire that his website has turned into, um, offered a $100,000 reward to anybody to produce a single bit of evidence that this episode happened. Um, there were probably 10,000 cell phones and TV cameras around. No one found any evidence that this happened. They made it up. And, but MSNBC, the mainstream media, the New York Times, they all went with this narrative that the, the Tea Parties weren't just fascists, but they were sort of white supremacists. The New York Times actually ran a book review about the history of the Ku Klux Klan in which Herman Cain was supposed to be proof that Klan-style racism lives today. Um, for those who don't know, Herman Cain is is a black guy who's one of the leaders of the Tea Party movement. And I'm not a huge fan of Herman Cain's, but to say that he was the moral equivalent of a Klansman, I just thought was insane. But that was the prism of it. And so a lot of people took away from this: we're damned if we do, we're damned if we don't. It's all about power politics now. It's all about identity politics now. Um, no matter what we want to do, we're going to get called a racist. National Review, where I've always been a bit of a squish on on immigration has been arguing for 30 years, 40 years, that if responsible politicians don't deal with the issue of immigration in a responsible way, it will create a vacuum in which some irresponsible politician will come in and exploit it for his own ends. How Donald Trump doesn't vindicate us on that prophecy, um, I have no idea. And I think that you know one of the things that sort of has created this backlash, this backlash is it takes two to tango and the way the left assumes going back to Charles Beard, if you want, that, you know, all of the rhetoric about the constitution and the founding, this is, these are all code words for white supremacy. Eventually, you know, you cause a lot of people to say, well, why am I even going to talk about this? If they're going to call me a white supremacist anyway, and they're going to call me a racist anyway, you end up getting people like Steve Bannon going off and speaking literally to the national front in France saying if they call you a racist, wear it as a badge of honor.
0: It's insanity. I I assume you would say, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, if Steve Bannon is saying embrace a a, a racist moniker, um, whatever impact or, or, or catalyst the left's reaction to the right contributed to that, the right has to take ownership of its own choices. Just because you were called the white supremacist, you you don't have to start a white supremacist rally in Charlottesville. That's a choice that you were making.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, I'm not, I am not doing this. They started it. They, you know, we're just, you know, the right rights problems are all a product of, 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 of the left being mean to us. There's a lot of problems that are, that, that, that there are a lot of choices that the right people on the right have made that have gotten us to where we are. All I'm saying is that um, to the extent, you know, the extent we're focusing on the left's role and the right's problem um, is that I think both that all of our politics are downstream of larger cultural forces that, um, uh, that, that, that our politics reflect. Um, But to be sure there are people on the right who have made horrible choices. Look, I have like one of the things that I am, think I am guilty of is, you know, I made a big deal about Saul Alinsky, you know, 10 years ago, my first book. Um, and a lot of people on the right became obsessed or infatuated with Saul Alinsky and said, we have to be like Saul Alinsky and mimic his tactics. And, you know, look, my argument is that Saul Alinsky is a bad dude who literally dedicated his book to, to, to Lucifer. Um, we shouldn't be like him. And instead There became this sort of widespread Alinsky envy on the right that said anything that means um, um, can always be justified by ends, um, which is a particularly pernicious thing, I think, for people who actually uphold, who claim to be in favor of fidelity to the Constitution. To make those kinds of arguments is particularly grotesque to me. Um, I think that a lot of the problems on the right stem from uh, problems of success. You know, this whole conservative ink that has emerged um, has allowed a lot of people to make a pretty good living only talking to audiences that already agree with them. I think there are problems like this on the left, too. But this is, this is another one of these things that's sort of just downstream of changes in the um, society, changes in the way we consume media. You know, I think National Review has done a pretty good, not flawless, job of policing the right of being a gatekeeper the problem is, is that while we were guarding the gate, all of the walls were pushed over. You know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, if Bill Buckley said that John Birchers need to be read out of the conservative movement, that had real power because if, if, if Bill Buckley said you were too crazy to be a serious conservative, you couldn't get on one of the four television channels. You couldn't get in one of the mainstream magazines. Um, today with the internet, you know, it's let a thousand flowers bloom and clickbait You know, uh, metrics are all that really matters, and it's much more difficult for National Review to have the kind of power as a gatekeeper that it once had. Same thing for you know New York Times and almost every sort of uh, legacy institution.
0: Well, speaking of uh, gatekeepers, you you have a chapter in the book where you uh, talk about elites. You defend elites. You call yourself uh, essentially an elitist uh, in in a positive way. And that's part of your argument against uh, mob rule and and, and populism. Uh, Clearly, that's not the uh, going line of logic on either the left or the right these days. Uh, What needs to be said about elitism to uh, give it its good name back? Yeah,
1: I'm not sure it'll ever really get it. I mean, part of this is one of the nice things about American culture is its natural skepticism to at least political elites, which I think is a healthy thing in a democracy, but at the same time, you know, uh, you know, no one ever says that they want to get, you know, no one ever says that they want a surgeon who is really sort of at the 50th percentile, right? You know, no one wants an, an average surgeon. We all want elite doctors. We want, um, you know, elite soldiers protecting us. We, 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 we like and value elites in almost every other realm, except politics where there's, you know, our sort of inner Jacksonian or Jeffersonian kind of clicks in. I would say, that first of all, though, the thing is the idea about anti-elitism is so silly to me, is that elites are inevitable. They and This is something the founders recognize, is that elites are inevitable. You're always going to have people sort of rising to the top because they're going to work harder, or they're going to care more, or they're going to be more motivated, or they're going to have more social or financial capital. It is inevitable that this is going to happen, that you're going to have elites in industry and politics everywhere. The question isn't whether or not you're going to have an elite, but what kind of elite, right? What, what ideas are they going to be committed to? What, what institutions are they going to be willing to defend? And I think that's where we have a real problem in this country is that, um, you know, very few elites either who want to defend sort of mainstream institutions and pluralism um, uh, either know the arguments or care to make them. And it I really seems to me, I've never been a centrist. Obviously, I'm a conservative, but there is a sense of the center that is different than just sort of political moderation that's not holding, you know, this idea that there is something valuable to America that needs to be fought for and defended regardless of whether or not you want socialized medicine. And there are very few people who want to make those arguments because I think the way the incentive structures are, too many people on the left um, uh, are sort of, there's a very little percentage for them to sort of take a sort of Arthur Schlesinger kind of approach to talking about America or American exceptionalism. Right. I mean, that's one of my great grievances is that American exceptionalism is now considered jingoism, but that was never how it was understood intellectually. You know, American exceptionalism, as Martin Lipset put it, was a double-edged sword. It had a real, you know, there was, it was a real thing. It was an analytical construct about how America was different And instead, it's now just sort of, you know, it's like fighting words when you're talking about Western civilization. How dare you talk about American exceptionalism? Well, if you're not willing to actually sort of talk about what makes this country different, forget special, just different, it's going to be very difficult to figure out how to defend those things that made it special.
0: Uh, In your your elite chapter, you have kind words to say about um the industrialists of the late 19th century. You say without the Morgans, Carnegie's, Gettys, Rockefeller's Goulds, and Vanderbilts, few of the truly great culture institutions we take for granted would be would be standing today. You talk about uh how the industrialization was good for uh the economic the economy in general. Um whereas the narrative on the left is that the Gilded Age was when economic equalities exploded and it needed the progressivism of the progressive era of Roosevelt, Wilson, FDR to ameliorate that. Uh, you have more negative things to say about uh, that trajectory uh, and the technocratic elites that came into power, you know, starting really with with Wilson. Um, why do you like the, the elites in the Gilded Age better than the government elites that came about afterwards?
1: Yeah, well, so part of the reason why I like the you know, why I defend the sort of so-called robber barons is that, um, uh, there is this idea out there that's very common that, that, um, these people got rich at the expense of everybody else. And yet the reality is, is that Americans got the average American got so much richer in the 18th and early 19th century or 18th and 19th century in the beginning of the 20th century, because of capitalism, that all of the metrics that again, good decent liberals say they care the most about, almost all of them started to improve. Um, the reason why I go after the progressive sort of technocrats is more to demonstrate. <coughs> excuse me. More to demonstrate how um, it was this this thing about how aristocracy is inevitable. And that um, the kind of aristocracy that it threw off, following the writings of Joseph Schumpeter, who I'm very sort of indebted to for this book, um, they became the intellectual classes became more and more antagonistic to the American founding, to the ideas of the uh, sort of of of, of you know, sort of classical liberalism. You know, you have Woodrow Wilson, who really is the ultimate symbol of uh, progressive intellectuals, right? He's the first PhD president. He got one of the first PhDs in America. He goes to Johns Hopkins, which is built one of the, the first major German-style universities. Um, and he had disdain for the American uh, Constitution. He had disdain for the Bill of Rights, thought the Constitution needed to be sort of replaced um, with a Darwinian living constitution rather than adherence to the old Newtonian Constitution. Um, he also threw thousands of political prisoners in jail, you know, and all these different things that I think are bad, most racist presidents of the 20th century. And, um, uh, and this aristocracy emerges, um, we didn't call it an aristocracy. We called it, you know, technocracy or, or disinterestedness and all the rest. But to me, it is an example of how, um, intellectual classes become sort of an adversary culture towards capitalism. This is why Schumpeter predicted capitalism would ultimately, uh, go give way to socialism because the children figuratively speaking but sometimes literally speaking the children of the capitalists the children of the robber barons and the industrialists they don't go on to become entrepreneurs they go on to become idea merchants or or priests as it were in the nietzschean sense and what they do is they end up controlling the commanding heights of the culture they are full of what, full of sort of nietzschean resentment at 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 the sort of at liberal democratic capitalism And they use the weapons that they have to undermine the story of of American liberal democracy. And so, so many of those progressives, some of them, look, were right about specific issues and, and really did believe that they were in the tradition of the founding, but a lot of them didn't. And what they did argue, though, was that they needed to be the ones in power, that life was, that capitalism was too chaotic, too scary. Um, too disorganized. And what was required was a new aristocratic class of experts to control everything. And that is what I object to. And that is what I think we have again today among a lot of the technocrats is people who think, who want to use one crisis or one excuse or another to say, we need, we experts need to control how other people live. And I think that is a tendency that emerges again and again and again in almost every society um, that goes through this process of getting richer. Um, and it's one that we have to be attentive to.
0: Uh, to wrap up this uh, conversation, what do you suggest to readers, uh, and listeners, what can they do to prevent a suicide of the West? I think, first
1: of all, just to sort of, we need to get a little bit out of our heads about a lot of this kind of stuff. You know, right now our politics is defined by, um, what I call in the book, ecstatic schadenfreude, you know, this idea that something is worthwhile just if it infuriates your enemy. And that's a real tribal understanding of politics. That is that is that is the corrupting influence of human nature at work. Um, and so I think everybody, particularly on the right, but also on the left, getting into uh, getting into a mindset that says maybe I should take it as a given that my political opponent isn't my enemy, but is actually a human being and that they are receptive to the uh, you know, to persuasion. You might not be able to persuade them, but I think the act in and of itself is a worthwhile thing. And I think the other thing is, look, by all means, we need to talk about how we fall short of our ideals. We need to, you know, it is n- there's nothing wrong with pointing about, pointing out the hypocrisy of the American founding, to pointing out the hypocrisy of all sorts of, of Jim Crow and the evil of those things. But it's also worth pointing out that the reason why those things were hypocritical is because they violated really good ideals. And those ideals should be unifying things for both left and right in this country. Instead, we're in this mode where we are constantly saying the ideals themselves are either no longer relevant or we're always sort of a con or or we're, we're evil in some ways. And that is what I think is terrible. I think John Rawls, good liberal philosopher, was absolutely right. Barack Obama used to quote him all the time, saying that if you were behind a veil of ignorance, which basically saying, you know, if you were off in heaven or in some limbo and you knew you were going to be born at any time in world history and in any place, you pretty much would pick the United States of America right now, even if you didn't know whether you were going to be male, female, gay, straight, black or white, because this Things are going pretty good despite all of our problems. And if you don't use the metric of the perfect, some imagined utopian perfect in the future, but instead you use the yardstick of the human past, this is pretty much a golden age. And there was no golden age in the past. This is it. And if you accept that, maybe you'll have a little gratitude. And when you have gratitude, you'll open yourself up to saying, there are some things that are good enough right now that we should defend them rather than take the radical approach of throwing it all away. And that is something I think that everybody should be able to
0: appreciate at least a little bit. The book is Suicide of the West, written by Jonah Goldberg. Thanks so much for being on New Books and Politics today. Hey, Bill, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.